It's December 16th, 2018. This is Acacia Thompson for Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here today on Box Street in Greenpoint, Brooklyn with Judge Adam Perlmutter. Judge Perlmutter, how long have you been in Greenpoint? Hi, Acacia. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, have a, I've been in Greenpoint since the spring of 1997. Okay. And how long, well, how did you get involved in defending environmental issues in Greenpoint? Well, when I first moved to Greenpoint, I was a, a young prosecutor in Queens, and I moved here because I was living in Tribeca and I needed to be closer to Kew Gardens. I got around on a motorcycle and it was a little difficult getting back and forth in the winter months from Tribeca to Kew Gardens on a 550 Suzuki. Uh, so um, I decided I wanted to live closer close to the water because I always uh, loved being on the water and near it so I explored up the Brooklyn waterfront one day and wound up uh, here in Greenpoint um, and I didn't get involved in any community stuff I, I knew that the neighborhood was very environmentally sensitive um, from the day that I came um, because I could see the decayed waterfront and the old factory buildings that I knew were were still industrial spaces uh, but I couldn't get involved in anything because I was a, I was a public servant and as an assistant DA. Um, I left that job uh, in right uh, I guess late 1999, early 2000, and uh, I decided that I wanted to uh, learn more about what was going on. So I went to a NAG meeting, uh, and I'd done a lot of reading about garbage and the concerns that were surrounding that with the closing of Fresh Kills and the impact of Giuliani's decision to close the Staten Island Fresh Kills facility and then the proliferation of waste transfer stations that, that caused in our neighborhood, uh, Williamsburg as well, and in the South Bronx. Uh, so I went to an ag meeting and I met uh, some activists, including uh, Christine Holobach, uh, and... Nothing much came of that meeting. Uh, you know, I guess they were having these monthly meetings for you know that were open to the community, and it was interesting. But then about a, th a month later, uh, Christine called me. She actually, I don't know how she found me, but I was working in the Chrysler Building, and she said that uh, she had just learned that Con Edison and Keyspan wanted to build a power plant at the um, Greenpoint Terminal Market site uh, at the end of Noble Street which I was very familiar with because I had started going to the synagogue on Noble Street. So she asked if I would uh, come to a press conference the next day, uh, which I came to, and everything kind of took off from there. I met the assemblymen. I'd spent the night doing research on how power plants are cited in New York State, what the process is like, what the environmental issues are, that are looked at uh, in that process. And... Uh, the next day, uh, the assemblyman uh, and Christine asked if I'd become involved. Uh, the firm I was working at was wonderful because it was a small firm. The two partners who I spoke to about my becoming involved because it seemed to be a, a, a could have been a very rather large undertaking. Uh, they were very supportive of it, um, so I got involved, and uh, that was actually a very quick fight. It took about three months to convinced Con Edison and Keyspan that they didn't want to uh, spend the political capital to try to force a new power plant into Greenpoint. And there were a lot of community meetings, a lot of organizing. Uh, I put together a small 
kind of working research group. Uh, we were able to, because of the, it was still kind of early in the internet, but there was a, there were two major portals on the internet that gave us information about power plant projects being proposed all over the state. Um, one was the Public Service Commission's website, and the other was the New York Independent Service Operators website, which runs the transmission system and the energy market for the state. And what was really was going on was that Greenpoint was the target of the deregulation of, of electric energy siting that was going on in New York. Uh, there was a uh, Pataki had pushed to to not have public utilities generating electricity, and said to bring in new. Uh, generators to co compete in the energy market. Um, so suddenly, Astoria, Greenpoint, Williamsburg, the Navy Yard, Sunset Park, uh, parts of the South Bronx waterfront, parts of the Staten Island waterfront, were the Wild West for new energy speculators. Um, I think what happened was is that uh, Con Ed backed away pretty quickly because they realized that you know they're just not an independent energy speculator. They need to do business in the city and. Uh, it was such an unpopular idea that they, they, they just it was untenable for them to do. So that, that was a quick that was a quick environmental victory and I went from there to kind of receding back into the into practice and then about a year later Christine called again and said that she wanted me to come to a meeting at the borough president's office because there was a energy develop another energy developer, a guy named Adam Victor who had a company then called Clean Point Energy, kind of a riff on Greenpoint, which eventually became Transgas Energy. And he was a much different uh, player than Con Edison. Uh, he was an independent energy producer. He had a lot of money. Uh, he lived in Manhattan. He'd made a fortune in energy trading, uh, as well as building up a, a power plant in Syracuse in a low-income neighborhood to supply energy to the university up there. So uh, that started a 10-year uh, saga in my life that was uh, you know, very difficult. Um, I uh, worked a lot with the community. Uh, eventually, um, it, the energy litigation is extraordinarily complex. Uh, to fully litigate it, you really have to bring a lot of energy law, regulatory law expertise with respect to transmission issues and clean air issues and a lot of stuff that are really kind of outside the purview of my criminal defense practice. Uh, and so uh, uh, Pace Law School had an energy uh, clinic that was brought in to work on behalf of the community. Um, and at the same time, the city, uh, after a lot of lobbying by me uh, with Dan Doctoroff and his staff, uh, came out uh, both wanting to do the rezoning of the waterfront, um, which is something that I think people had thought about for a long time. I mean, even Giuliani was, I'd heard, was going to be proposing a rezoning of the waterfront uh, back during his administration. But so that there was a combination of rezoning and uh, rezoning in a way that would uh, stop the power plant uh, and stop Adam Victor's uh, uh, project. So that kind of led to me to really kind of working not just in the community, but really working with these waterfront property owners up and down the waterfront because they had just as much an interest in stopping this power plant as, as people who were long-term residents of the community. Uh, they were really staking a lot of economic risk on the waterfront and certainly didn't want a power plant there. Um, so uh, I started meeting all these you know, waterfront developers. Uh, 
one person in particular was a lawyer at a firm called Herrick Feinstein. I remember meeting him one day and he said to me, you know, if you really want to screw over Adam Victor, uh, you should have the city map the transgas, the Bayside property, as parkland. And before that, the Bushwick Inlet Park wasn't, there was no idea of the Bushwick Inlet Park. It was the Eastern District Terminal property. That's what everybody wanted to turn into parkland because there on Bushwick Inlet was was an operating fuel depot and Norman Brodsky had his operating document storage business there and he'd also expanded into the Eastern District Terminal site when he snapped up that property out of bankruptcy. Um, but nobody really thought about the Bushwick Inlet or there's no sign of a Bushwick Inlet Park. It was always Eastern District Terminal in the East River State Park that it became. But this lawyer said, you know, if you really want to screw over Transgas, uh, the city should map the Bayside site as parkland. And I said, well, what, what does that do? And he said, well, the problem, you see, that, that would really screw, over, screw them over because once you map land as parkland and it gets acquired for that purpose, it can never be used for any other purpose except by an act of the legislature because otherwise it would violate the state constitution. And so there was this whole notion of when you get parkland and it's owned by the, in the public trust, it's always parkland, unless the legislature decides, no, we don't want this to be parkland anymore, which is a very big lift politically. So uh, I remember I, I'd had, I developed enough of a relationship with, with Dr. Off's staff that I dialed in this guy, Joe Chan, uh, when we were at this meeting at this law firm. And I said to Joe, hey, you know, I'm with this guy, Mark Levine. And he says, if you really want to screw over Transgas, and they, they didn't like this guy by, the, by this time. I mean, the way that I'd gotten the city to really kind of come out after uh, Adam Victor is that I was really able to catch him in lies that he was telling to the community, as well as telling to the Bloomberg administration. I mean, that's one of my skills as a criminal defense lawyer is catching people in lies. And I was able to do it with him. Um, so he lost credibility. They didn't like him. They didn't believe anything that he would tell them. Um, so Chahan said, you know, this guy Joe Chan said, what, 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 what would we do? I said, well, Mark Levine says you should map the Bayside site in designing a rezoning to include park, to be parkland. And uh, he said the same question that I said, like, well, what would that do? And th this guy was on the speakerphone and he said, this guy Mark Levine said, you would, you know, they would have to, you need an act of the legislature to unwind it. So then Joe um, actually started speaking with people in city planning and city planning said, you know, actually the Bushwick Inlet is a really great natural feature. And what we should do is we should really just push the whole park to incorporate the Bushwick Inlet proper. And then the thing could become the Bushwick Inlet Park and it would be a great, it would be a great assemblage of open space. So that's how that kind of came about uh, in the rezoning itself. Um, so anyway, um, eventually the case went into uh, hearings and uh, I couldn't do the hearings um, because I had just had a kid and I just bought a house and I was uh, starting on my own law firm. And, and it was, you know, I mean, I left my old firm and went, moved downtown and flipped on the switch one day with just one client and needed to figure out how to make a living. And what happened is that Christine actually recommended that I meet with George Klein, who was up here in North Greenpoint now, his building, um, and speak to him about whether I should represent him in the Transgas hearings. Um, I was kind of skeptical because his property is so far from the Transgas site, it's like a mile away. 
Um, and uh, but you know, I'd heard stuff about the guy, and I was certainly interested in meeting him. So I went to spend a, a morning with him at his office, and uh, I remember when I showed up to his office, he, he had this tower on. It was Park Tower was his company, and he had this tower on Park Avenue, and he had the two top floors of it for his offices. Um, a big black modernist building, and uh, I went up with Christine, and we waited in his uh, waiting room, and there was fabulous Dubuffet paintings in the waiting room, like really amazing art collection. And then there was a beautiful stairway up to the second floor where his offices were, and at the top of the stairway was this huge ancient map of Venice. And I love Venice, I love Italy. So I saw this map and I said to him, what's, you know, what is this? This is beautiful. And he said, this, he said, this is New York City. Or it could be. And uh, I mean, I think he didn't mean it in terms of New York City flooding post Sandy. I think he meant it in terms of, you know, there's an irony there. But he meant he in and he and he spoke kind of very like broadly about uh, about the East River and about the city's development and about you know where we were headed. Um, and this was after nine eleven. I mean, Transgas was they they were so evil that their pre-application for their to, to really officially kick off the process of citing their power plant was filed on September 12th, 2001. And their application was filed uh, uh, on, on Christmas Eve of 2003. I mean, these were, these, were, these were really, this was a nasty thing that, was, that we had to try to kill. So I met with, you know, and I asked the client, I said, you know, why, why would you hire me? You know, you're so far away from the, from the site. Why, why, why do you care? In fact, isn't it better for you if they build a power plant and other real estate development around there fails because of its proximity to that plant? And he said, you don't understand. He said, I, I, said, I want the whole city to develop. He said, you know, he, said, he, was the, he was the chair of the United Nations Development Corporation that was redoing the, actually the UN headquarters on the East River. He said, you know, I want this whole, he said, I want, eventually I want people to be able to get on a bicycle, to be able to ride a bike down the East River, to get on the Williamsburg Bridge, to go across to Manhattan, to ride up to the 59th Street Bridge and come back home to Greenpoint. And, you know, he had a, he had a uh, Calatrava designed bridge for getting over the Newtown Creek, a footbridge that he wanted to build. And, you know, he was a real big visionary guy. So, uh, and he said that he wanted me, he wanted me to, to, to be in the Transgas case. He didn't think it would go successfully unless I was able to be actually present at the hearings, mm-hmm. cross-examining, doing the, my, the, the work that I do as a trial lawyer. Right. Um, so I did it. And it was great. It was really, really a great experience. The, um, uh, the hearings were uh, uh, held over in Penn Station, in Penn Plaza. There's a big state office facility. and. There were these two judges, one from DEC and one from the Public Service Commission, who presided. There were probably usually like 50 people in the in the examination room between expert witnesses and lawyers and parties and community representatives and stenographers. And I mean, it was a big scrum of legal proceeding. And uh, the, we put on the case that the city's and the state's interests were far better served by allowing the waterfront to develop without a power plant than with one. And uh, in 2004, in April of 2004, the judges agreed. 
and I thought this is great. I'm, you know, I'm gonna get I'm getting out of this case, and the rezoning even hasn't happened yet, so I don't have to represent be representing a developer anymore. Um, you know, I'm I've I've successfully done the case, and now I'm off the matter, and the rezoning can happen, and I can kind of not be in you know with a developer. And then Transgas turned around and said to the judges, we hear everything you're saying about the impacts of our power plant and the development. We have a new idea. We want to take our power plant and build it underground. And that way the Bushwick Inlet Park can be built on top of it and we won't conflict with the Bushwick Inlet Park. And the judges said, that's a very interesting idea. Let's take a look at that. We'll have more hearings. We'll consider it more. And that meant that the case, that I couldn't get out of the case. So, <laughs> so I was stuck. So I was stuck with you know in this case, represent you know being paid by a developer in the middle of the rezoning. And my attitude with the community was, look, nobody wants this power plant. Okay, we have Vito Lopez, who's a local assemblyman. He's the chair of the housing committee. What is my voice going to add to affordable housing? with all of the organizations and activists in this neighborhood on those issues. Nothing. I mean, come on. You know, people want to retain an industry, uh, and NAG was very much into that. I'm like, that's fine. You know, they're, they're, the, the New York Industrial Retention Network is involved in the local community. Other organizations are. St. Nick's, you know, uh, Evipco at the time. You know, they all, do, they all do industrial retention. What's my voice going to add to that, you know? I just, and, and finally, you know, my, my only real fight with the community was don't forsake the perfect for the good. Uh, if you don't do this rezoning in some fashion, this power plant may move forward. And it was a real threat. I mean, people were calling it the, vamp, the vampire plant by that time because, you know, now they're jumping underground and the state's like, okay, we'll think about that. And, um, uh, No matter what the case was, and I remember the only time I really spoke publicly then on the rezoning, um, at least before it got to City Hall, uh, the only issue I would speak on specifically is if you're going to reject the rezoning, because the rezoning was actually four applications. One was for the, uh, the waterfront access plan. One was for the, the actual height and bulk of the, of the facilities. One was for the affordable housing and one was for the park, for Bushwick Inlet Park. And I said, if you, no matter what you do, no matter what you reject, because the community could vote down the rezoning, or they could vote it down with recommendations, or they could approve it recommendations, they could just approve it. I said, you can't just turn around and just completely vote down the park. Like, you're just going to say you don't want the park? I mean, that, that's like an irrational... You know, you could say, I don't want the, 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 all the other parts of it, but, you know, and so there was a lot of, there was a lot of contention. I mean, people said, no, we should just reject the whole thing outright. It's illegitimate. Well, you know, it was, it was a matter for, it was a matter for discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, look, ultimately, you know, that happened and uh, the rezoning happened. Uh, the Transgas case kept going. Uh, at one point I was uh, uh, with Joe Lentall, uh, you know, begging uh, uh, Elliot Spitzer to, 
not to kill the project, but just to make a decision. Because, you know, by this time, you know, we had a new administration and there was delays in, the, in, in, in getting the commissioners who would ultimately decide the issue appointed. And the hearing examiners were just kind of sitting around like, well, we're going to wait until the new administration is formed and they've developed their energy policy and know what they want to do with respect to power plant development. Here. And then we'll consider the trans gas case again. And it was just, I mean, it was like, it was like a timeshare. You just couldn't get rid of it, you know. And uh, so um, it was nuts. And then, so, and one time, literally, I was with uh, uh, Joe Lentil uh, and David Yasky with Elliot Spitzer in his office, saying, "It's inappropriate for me to tell you how to rule on this case because it's ultimately a regulatory decision, and you're in, in the state government's going to have to decide it. But for God's sakes, you know, make a decision." Yeah. So they did. They ultimately made a decision in 2010. No, earlier, 2007, and then there were appeals that were successful, and then Transgas was finally dead. Right. But the problem was is that what to do then about Bushworth Inlet Park, because the city had grossly um, underestimated the cost of acquiring all the land. And once Doctoroff left the administration, there really wasn't any type of advocate or anybody really wanting to get on with the responsibility of actually putting this together. And my only interest was making sure that it got acquired for parkland, because in my legal mind, that would uh, attach the constitutional protections and would forever be parkland unless undone by an act of the legislature. So um, they acquired one property uh, in about 2011, which was right next to the Eastern District term to the, to the state park uh, from uh, uh, Lewis Silverman, Ford G's Trucking. Everybody was kind of in bed with each other on different property ownerships and stuff. So everybody kind of, you know, made money on the, you know, on, on each, uh, on different parcels and different combinations of profitability. But they, they, the city started a, a um, condemnation action and they ran into a real problem with the judge in that case, who was a guy named Abram Gurgis, who used to be the councilman from Greenpoint. Hmm. And uh, he thought that the city in creating the Bushwick Inlet Park mapping had cut out certain property owners from the right to be residentially zoned and therefore thought that they should be uh, acquired at residential prices. Very expensive. They took out uh, this one property, spent about $93 million for the first property. Uh, the city budgeted $35 million total for all the acquisition of property for the Bushwick Inlet Park. Um, they ultimately spent 10 times that amount by the time they got the city storage property. Um, but city storage was very quickly very recalcitrant in the notion of negotiating with the city. Norm Brodsky, the owner, was living there. He had a spectacular apartment uh, in one of the buildings that he shared with his wife and his family. And uh, um, his attitude was, they got residential valuation, I get residential valuation unless the city pays me what my property's worth residentially, they can, they can, you know, which a judge will give them in a condemnation proceeding. Uh, they can talk to me about developing the property, but otherwise they can, they can go pound sand. Uh, so in 2014, there was a huge fire at his property, and uh, half of it burned down, including the apartment. Uh, and this, the community started organizing, uh, and uh, this was when, this was about a year into de Blasio taking office, 
the city started organizing, uh, the community started organizing, and uh, Catherine Thompson was very involved. I remember speaking with her about, you know, uh, about whose plates were more full, and I was like, Catherine, you're going to have to step up, and she did, actually. She was great about it, um, and Dewey was really supportive as well, and Steve Chesler stepped in. There was a good core group of activists um, who worked really effectively with each other and didn't... Um, they worked effectively with each other, and they wouldn't work with people who couldn't work effectively with a group. And they were very, they were very strict about that, and very, and they were good. Uh, they put up with me. Uh, so um, uh, what happened was is that we all kind of put our heads together and worked up a strategy, which was that since the Bushwick Inlet Park had been approved in the Euler proceeding. And the city, de Blasio, was trying to do citywide ULERP actions on affordable housing and on what they called like quality, like there's a quality initiative to affect citywide uh, uh, zonings. Uh, and basically every zoning that would happen going forward in the city would have to go through ULERP again, this kind of arcane landry process. Um, they... Uh, they organized and went out to all these community boards all around the city and went to the Euler meetings at those board me at those community board meetings and to the borough president's meetings and the city planning commission meetings and they were like the voice in the wilderness screaming out, do not trust the city in rezonings or Euler actions. They will make you promises that they will not keep. They made us promises to build Bushwick Inlet Park and they have reneged on their promise. They cannot be trusted. And this message echoed throughout all of these land use meetings all around the city. And people started turning and saying, well, what do you mean they broke their promises to you? Well, let me tell you the story of Bushwick and Lip Park and the 2005 rezoning. And it got a lot of traction. What happened at, while that was all going on is that I started doing uh, research in uh, eminent domain law, which is an extraordinarily arcane area of constitutional law. Um, and found that there was actually law developing in New York that said Norman Brodsky does not get residential valuation. He gets industrial valuation. And uh, there was a lot of kind of pushback. I mean, you know, I would tell, I, I was in touch with Norman. I would tell him this, and, you know, his response is, you don't know anything about eminent domain law. Uh, and uh, eventually I was trying to engage the city lawyers from the Corporation Council, and there was a lot of resistance. Um, they actually, their eminent domain group had gotten involved in the Transgas case at one point because Transgas tried to create a special type of public services transportation company to condemn that property so that the city could not then take it for the park. And the, the, this judge, Judge Gurgis, was presided on that as well because he's the eminent domain judge for Brooklyn. And the city really kind of screwed up the, um, the, the matter. The lawyer, there was one lawyer in particular from the eminent domain group who had screwed up, the, screwed up the oral argument because he'd said to the judge that he could just punt on the issue and not allow either the city or Transgas to acquire the property until the Article 10 proceeding, the, the power plant siting case was completed, which would take like another several years. Um, so when we eventually got back to eminent domain issues with respect to Norman's property, there's a lot of resistance by the city lawyers to embrace this view of the law that I was pushing. A lot of it, too, was that 
they really screwed up when they did that first eminent domain action and gave paid a residential valuation to that Silverman Four G's Levine Group because that gave brought that gave Norman a benchmark for what his property should receive. Right. So it was really just kind of very poor lawyering, which I can say now that I'm a judge with some impunity. Um, <laughs> maybe not complete, but I also have absolute immunity as a judge, which is an advantage to my job. Um, anyway, but joking aside, um, there was this old doctrine from 1943 in the case United States versus Miller of the United States Supreme Court, where a farmer named Miller uh, sued, saying that he'd been cut out of a railroad zoning action out in the Midwest, and that the town got located in a place where a lot of people made money, but he didn't, and he should get paid what they, you know, all, you know what the what the other folks got, and. Uh, um, the, the law doesn't work that way. What the law says is that if there's a well-organized land use plan, people get what they get. And if there is property that is slated for condemnation, they are slated at the zoning that they are at the time of the rezoning. So Norman is M1 heavy, as M3 heavy industrial land. Uh, maybe M1, I, I'd have to check the map. But, he's, but he's, he's an industrial manufacturing zoning. He can't say that he's a... Uh, He's a residential property. And uh, eventually there was a meeting at City Hall in the summer of 2016 because the I kept saying, you know, the, the, the city would not embrace my view of the world and the law. And uh, all the elected officials were saying to the city, well, you guys have it all wrong. I mean, your lawyers are giving the mayor the wrong advice. Uh, this is what Perlmutter says. And, you know, the city, the, the, you know, the deputy mayor, uh, her, uh, Alicia Glenn's staff is saying, well, you know, what does Perlmutter know? He's a criminal defense lawyer. You know, he represents drunk drivers and terrorists, you know. Um, and uh, so, um, but eventually it got to be such a headache that Emma Wolf called a, uh, a meeting. It was going to be a debate between me and the city lawyers. And I flew in from vacation uh, in Maine uh, and I spent most of my vacation prepping and went in and we had a debate in the cow, the Committee on Welfare, it's on the second floor of City Hall. It's a big round tabled room that sits like 24 people and I had all my elected officials on one side and all the city top mayor staff on the other side. And, uh, and then the lawyers directly across. And I had uh, Steve Levin next to me. And I started talking about Miller and U.S. You know, f f Supreme Court cases. And the lawyers across were very smart. It was like the head of their civil litigation for the whole city. Um, and he said, uh, listen, you know, it, we understand what you're saying, a lot of money involved, and what we're really concerned about with is, are the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that, for whatever reason it is, this first property was acquired as a residential valuation. So we need to think that, you know, that kind of set a precedent. And Steve Levin piped in, he said, you know, you say that, but we just redid the 25 Kent uh, properties zoning uh, to reinforce manufacturing for the area. Why is it that if land use is now moving, if, if you're talking about the facts on the ground today, and that's what it said, I care about the facts on the ground today, why is it that Norman can have any claim to a residential valuation when this huge property is now going to be forever manufacturing at 25 Kent? And the city lawyer said, well, what are you talking about? And, we, and Steve's like, we just did this huge ULERP. We just changed this whole special permit thing. There's like this whole debate and discussion going on 
about industrial spaces and the proliferation of hotels and trying to figure out how to deal with that and basically reinforcing what little what industrial land there is left for new you know service economy oriented uses as well as maker uses and uh, they're like well we, we don't know about any of this and, really, and that's what it was it was just it was literally people not talking with each other mm-hmm. so the meeting went well and the upshot of the meeting was after it, there was a pushback to Norman that says, look, you're entitled to, an indu- to, to this industrial valuation. And I had done work with Word Dennis. I actually, I knew a, uh, I, I happen to know through uh, other stuff, of, uh, uh, you know, because of all my work. I mean, I do know a lot of people in, in real estate and they've all been very supportive of the, of the park stuff. So, for example, I needed to study every industrial sale of land in New York, in, in Queens and Brooklyn for the prior three years. Uh, and literally, with, with a phone call and a, and, a, and a tap of the button, all that data was just provided to me in, like, usable format. You know, like, we don't know what you need this for, but, you know, keep our name out of it. And, but, this, but all this data is, is, this is the real data, so you can, you can do your analysis. And Ward and I were able to take that and, and, and say, this is what... This is what uh, uh, city storage is worth. Um, the funny thing is, is that I was on the phone one day with Joe Lantall, and he said what he thought the city storage property was worth, and it completely bit off his head because he was just being completely like back of the, you know, kind of, he was just pulling it out of thin air, mm-hmm. and he was right. <laughs> it turns out... <laughs> We, we la- I went back and apologized to him because when the analysis finally got done, because the fact is is that it was waterfront property and there's a there is a there is a uh, uh, an enhanced value even if you're industrial property on being right on the water. It's like when you look we that's a concept that was we modeled off of um, the uh, Hudson River Park because they did a tax study and we're just looking at the increased valuation from being near water, near park. And it's like a 30% kicker, you mm-hmm. know, that you get. Um, and that had, and even for industrial land, that has to be, that has to be taken into account. So that's kind of how the number ultimately wound out. Anyway, and that's it. That that's it. it. Well, along the way, Steve Hindy started this thing, the Open Space Alliance, to be a conservancy serving North Brooklyn. And uh, he asked me to become involved, and I did. And eventually, he asked me to, you know, after he was on the, he was the chair of the board for like ten years, he asked me to <clears throat> replace me, and I did re- replace him, and I did. Um, but also gave me, you know, an additional platform for for doing a lot of that work, and um, and it it actually uh, gave created the resources <coughs> to fund the Friends of Bushwick in that park. Um, in their in their community organizing work, um, because when we did the uh, concerts at Fifty Kent, the money had to stay in the park, and we were able to then use that fund from the concerts. Since you know we wanted to use it anywhere in the district, and the parks department said no, it has to be turned right back into Bushwick and Lab Park. You can't use it for any other purpose. That was fine. <laughs> we figured out how to, we figured out how to work with that, and it was great for the friends of Bushwick and the Park because you know they wanted to do this, they wanted to do that, they wanted to print something, they needed resources. We were also was like no problem, we got we got money and a fund for you to do that. Right. Um, so we were able to get that was very helpful along the way.
And are you still involved with Open Space Alliance? <clears throat> I'm not. I'm, I mean, I went to their, I, you know, since I took the bench, I need to withdraw from all these uh, activities, and I have. Yeah. Uh, but I'm doing other stuff uh, within the criminal justice system that my position as a judge affords me. And then um, hopefully I'll be able to have an effect on other people's lives as the way hopefully I've been able to do with Bushwick in the Park. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me and sharing your story. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.